Thank you for listening to the teaching podcast of Muncie First Church. If you would like to know more about us, go to MuncieFirstChurch.com. Or if you would like to support a ministry, go to the giving page, MuncieFirstChurch.com slash give. Well, let's jump into the teaching from this last week. Well, good morning, church. We are going to... uh continue this morning the series that we started last week it's our Easter series called resurrected and uh, to not try to do too much recap if you weren't here you're just gonna have to go listen online and and catch up Um, but uh, simply put resurrection is this idea of taking something that was dead and bringing it back to life that is as simple as I can do and that's all the recap I'm gonna do so if you want to know more and you miss it you got to go you got to go listen to the sermon online. But resurrection has huge implications for our life. I don't know whether you realize that or not. It has huge implications for you and for me. No matter where we're at, no matter how long we've been to church or how little we've gone to church, it has a massive effect on our lives. And we often talk about resurrection in the church in, in terms of what Jesus did on the cross. The idea that He died on a cross and was buried in a tomb and rose three days later. And I don't know if you know this or not, but that is why we gather. That is the foundation of our faith. That is the only thing that separates us from any other religion in the world or any other faith system or anything is is that Jesus didn't stay in the tomb. There are other gods and other religious figures and they're still in their tomb. You can go and visit those tombs. They're still there. But Jesus is not That's why we gather this morning. That's why we worship. That's why we have Christianity, church. This is the foundation of everything we believe. And it has real life-changing implications for you and for me. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. That's what we're going to talk about over the next couple of weeks in this series. And, And for those of you who are maybe new or you've not grown up in church or been around church at all, this may just be nonsense talk to you. It may just seem a little weird, like... Here we go, talking about dead people coming back to life. That's a little freaky. I I promise you it has power in your life. And I hope that by the end of today, or at the very least by the end of this series, you will see that. Now, I want to begin with a question this morning that I think we can all uh, relate to. But before I do that, I I, want to just take a moment and pray. If If you would, pray with me. Jesus, we just... We just want to meet with you in these next few moments, God. We, I believe with all my heart that you have something for us today. That you have something specific for someone, maybe many, many, many people in the room, God. But I believe that there's at least one, God, this morning that you have something specific for them. And, and, and I, maybe that's just me. I don't know. God, but I'm trusting that you're going to move in these next moments and change hearts. That God, lives this morning that they will be forever changed by what you're about to uh, speak to us through this message and through through your word we pray this in jesus name amen here's my question this morning have you ever been tricked before that you're willing to admit you know i mean sometimes we get tricked and we're like i don't really want no one to know about that we don't want anyone to know that i was tricked in that way. One that's kind of embarrassing for me is several years ago I was trying to sell an amp on uh, Craigslist and this was early days of the Craigslist scam. I was not aware of those scams yet and 
Uh, I actually kind of let this thing play out way further than it should have. Um, and thankfully, Allison was like, hey, don't do that. Stop. Stop. I, I, I mean, I was this close to getting duped for about $1,300. Just right there. And she's like, you better not cash that check. You know, one of those things. It's like, and the bank president even came out and was like, hey, you shouldn't cash this check. You know, that's how close I was to being tricked, you know. And, and, and it was embarrassing, but it was like, oh, you know, you feel good when you, when you catch it. When you don't catch it, though, you feel kind of dumb, don't you? You, you know, I, I worked in a place, too. I worked in a grocery store where that was like our job. We didn't really care about the groceries so much as we did just care about tricking each other and pranking one another. That was really the fun of the job. And I mean, so we've, we all can relate to that being tricked, right? You, you know what, what that's like. And um, recently, not, not super recently, but relatively recently, I have uh, picked up the uh, just kind of hobby of, of messing with uh, cards. I really have kind of found myself getting fascinated with sleight of hand and, and card magic. And, and the reason I started doing it was because I had heard somewhere that you can like build up strength in your hands. And I'd been having a lot of pain in my wrists. And I was like, Hey, you know, this sounds fun. Let's try that. Exercise, not so much. Playing with cards, that sounds like something fun. You know, let's do that. And so I started doing that. And the kids, my kids love it, especially Lila. Lila loves being tricked. She does not want to know how any of it works. Even if I mess up, she's like, don't tell me, Dad. Don't tell me. She loves the, the, the magical quality of it all, just like being, you know, wondered by this, like, amazing thing. And it's really not that amazing when I do it, I promise. I'm just, I'm just learning. But it, it, it's been very fascinating for me. Jocelyn, so, not so much. She is much more my child in that she is very critical, like mean critical, like pointing out every failure, like trying to, like, peek under and see what I'm doing. And she's like, I know how you did that, Daddy. And I'm like, shut up. Just let a guy be for five minutes. I'm working on it, okay, you know? But through this process, something that I've learned, and I think it's fascinating and applies to what we're going to talk about today, is that our brains and our eyes trick us all the time. In fact, our brains are wired to do that. Because our brains tell us that I want to use the least amount of power, the least amount of thinking and, and, and processing power to arrive at certain conclusions. For example, our eyes see in 2D. Did you know that? Our eyes see everything in two-dimensional. Our brains rewire it and tell us that it's 3D. I find that, that I learned that this week. It was, I mean, how did I not know that, you know? It is amazing. And there's this great show on, uh, I believe it's National Geographic, if you've never heard of it, called Brain Games. And they talk about all this stuff. It's, it's crazy. The, the things that our minds every single day are tricking us and making assumptions about things. And we believe stuff. Even if somewhere in there we know it's contradictory to what, our, what we think, our minds fill in the blanks and tell us how it should be all the time. I want to show you, and I don't know how well it will look on this screen, but the, the, here's an example of this from that show. Go ahead and play this clip, Kyle. Take a closer look at this deck. 
And the thing about habits is sometimes they're no joke. Did you catch it? You can't tell, but they're all red. You know, when you see the uh, trick, it's not that magical, is it? It's kind of like, wow, that was really lame. Really lame. And there were probably like a thousand other videos that I could have showed to illustrate this point, but I really like the language that he uses right there at the end. That our brain's desire to fill in the blanks tricks us all the time. And I think this happens every day as it relates to our sin. As it relates to sin. And I know that talking about sin is never fun, never popular. But I think it's a real thing that we deal with constantly in our lives. And our brains trick us into believing or thinking that we can just ignore it. If we just ignore it, it'll go away. You ever, you ever thought that? Like you got something broken at the house and you're like, if I just don't look at it, it'll fix itself. You know, or that room that's really dirty. It's like, man, if I just close the door, <laughs> no one will know. And, and then, like, little elves will come in at night. And, and no, no, it never... I wish, right? I wish. We got a playroom like that. I have two elves, too, but they don't ever clean it. <laughs> they, don't ever, they don't ever clean it. But what we do often with our sin is we ignore it. We rationalize it. We justify it. We try to explain it away. And eventually what happens is it just becomes a part of who we are. And we say things like, well, that's just how I've always been. You know, my mom was like that. Her mom was like that. So I'm like that. Or my dad did it. His dad did it. And now I do it. And that's just who I am. But it's still sin. And the crazy, crazy thing about sin is that when it's small, it doesn't stay small. Here's the bottom line. If you, if you fall asleep, get nothing else out of this message. Your kid sets children's church on fire and you got to go get them. You know, get this. Here's the bottom line. Kyle, can you show us? Baby problems always grow into big problems. Baby sins, they start little and they seem insignificant. No big deal. Just kind of hanging out there, tiny. They grow. They get big. And the crazy thing is, is they're much easier to deal with when they're small. But so often we just ignore it, we rationalize it, we explain it away, and then they grow into this big, big problem. Now the story I want to look at today in Scripture is what could be considered one of the greatest sins or greatest deceptions ever committed in human history. In fact, Dante in the Inferno said it this way, that the individual committing such a sin should be in hell forever, chewed in the mouth of the devil without ever being digested. Sounds yummy, doesn't it? It really makes you hungry for lunch. If you're familiar with that and you know who he's talking about, he's talking about Judas. 
The betrayal of Jesus by Judas Iscariot for 30 pieces of silver with a kiss on the cheek. And it's documented for us in the book of Matthew. If you want to turn there, you can join me. Matthew chapter, chapter 26 is where we're going to be. And then we're going to jump to 27. Uh, we're going to start with verses 47 and we'll read 47 through 50. And then we'll jump to uh, 27 and read a few verses there. Do we have them on the screen? I cannot see that from here. Okay. It says this, chapter 26, verses 47 through 50. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. I don't know if he would have said it quite so up as I just did. <laughs> I don't know. That was a little, a little excited. Greetings, Rabbi. You know, I don't know if he'd have said it that way. Um, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. Notice that he calls him friend. Can you even imagine that for a second? Put yourself in Jesus' shoes. I don't know about you. I have been hurt and betrayed for far less, with far less repercussions than what is happening in this moment. And I would not call those people friend. Would you? And yet Jesus, in his grace and his mercy, is willing to call him friend. I think that's significant. We're going to come back to that later on. But I want to point out something else before we jump to chapter 27. Uh, I, I believe that Judas did not want Jesus to die. I think that I have, I don't know about you, but I have often believed that, that he did. And, and, and reading this next passage that we're about to read, I, I really believe that we see from what it says that Judas did not want Jesus to die. What he actually wanted was Jesus to listen to him, to do his will. Have you ever been guilty of that? I know I have. I mean, I want God to be on my timing. I want him to do what I want him to do. I want him to do my bidding, like a genie. You know, we got three wishes, only I want unlimited ones, and I want him to do everything I say. You ever been, been there? I think that's what Judas is, is, is doing. Not that he wanted him to be killed, but that he wanted him to just carry out his will. This is what it says, 20, chapter 27, verses 3 through 5. It says, When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned... I just realized something is reading. That is freaky. God, is that you? Let me try that again. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. Your, that's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went and hanged himself. See, I think this is kind of the end of the story. And the question I ask when I read this is, how did we get here? 
How did we go from a guy who followed Jesus for three years as one of the 12 disciples, one of the men who saw all that he saw and was a part of this amazing movement of faith and and this power of God, and yet we end up here? How do we get here? Well, I think we need to flash back because I, I think that Judas's journey to this point is a journey of small discrepancies, small misdeeds that grew into big ones. These massive sins that he couldn't handle. Now, you guys have Netflix, I assume, like most people have Netflix. If you use Netflix at all or have watched it in the last three months, you have probably seen the myriad of Ted Bundy documentaries. I mean, there's like a ton of that stuff. I don't know why. Is it like an anniversary or something? I have no idea why that's all of a sudden a thing, but it just keeps popping up on mine. It's always like the suggested thing to watch. And, and normally I'm not into that sort of thing, but I mean, you see it there so often, you're like, okay, fine, you know, <laughs> let's, let's see what it's about, you know, and I watched like the first two episodes, and you know what I find fascinating about that story is how unlike Ted Bundy, Ted Bundy was, you know, maybe that doesn't make sense, how unlike a murderer he was to everyone. It's the classic thing is, you know, you hear a story like that, and you're like, but he was such a nice guy. Everybody liked him. He was the popular person, that, a very attractive kind of person. Nobody would have ever thought that he would have done the things that he did. No one. In fact, if you are familiar with the movie that they're making of this story, they cast a high school musicals star actor, Zac Efron, to play Ted Bundy. Now, if you know who that is, you know that that don't compute. That does not mix. Like, why him? Why, of all people, why him? How could a guy who would be mistaken for a Zac Efron, high school musical singing, most popular, good-looking kind of guy, end up becoming why we have the, def- the word, you know, serial killer? How does that happen? How do we get there? Well, in an interview, uh, I believe with Focus on the Family, at the, towards the end of his life, Ted Bundy admitted that he believed in his own heart that all of this that got him to that point, began with an addiction to pornography. Something that maybe seemed so small and insignificant grew into this thing that completely destroyed his life and the life of many, many other people as a result. Now hear me, I'm not saying that if you've ever looked at pornography or you have an addiction to pornography that you're going to end up like Ted Bundy. Not saying that. There's a lot of science and a lot of stuff that does say, though, that that is one of the most powerful and dangerous sins that people can struggle with. But I think it's like any sin. It all starts really small and insignificant. It seems like, oh, that's no big deal. It's just one look. And it's not hurting anybody anyways, right? It's just, it's just a thing that I struggle with. It's just my thing. And then it grew into something that had complete control over his life. Complete control over his life. And I think that's what happens with any sin, is it starts really tiny, and then it takes over, and it grows into something that we can't handle. Now, I I think James says it best. James, the the brother of Jesus, uh, says it like this in James chapter 1, verses 14 through 16. He says, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away, away by their own evil desires and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to death and sin. When it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. 
when it is full grown, it gives birth to death. When we let it grow, it will kill us. See, I I think that no one in here would argue that Judas was probably not someone that we ought to model our lives after, right? I mean, no one's naming, I don't know anybody named Judas. Do you? Hope not. I mean, that's not even a name that like, it doesn't pop up on any 100 name your baby lists, you know, or whatever, 100 names to name your baby list. That's not like in the top 100. I don't even know if it'd make the top 500 because it's synonymous with this idea of someone that we shouldn't be like, right? But what's interesting is that that wasn't true in Judas's day. So how did he, I want to I follow the progression of how he got to where he, he is at that moment when he betrays uh, Jesus. But, but in his day, he was the model child, the straight A student. Moms, dads, he was the one that you hoped your daughter would date. That you'd be okay if she brought him home. You're like, yeah, I was hoping you'd bring Judas home. I know that he's an honest trustworthy he's a good looking guy he's got the you know pocket thing to protect his pins and he's got the glasses and he's you know he's got a shirt tucked in he's not doing anything wrong he is the guy he's the guy that you wanted to have as a friend that your parents would let you stay out late with because he knew he's gonna get you home on time you know and it was gonna be great so how do we get from that to where he is but here's here's something interesting even the disciples trusted him Even they, I mean, they trusted him so much that when the vote came to say, who's going to watch over the money, they didn't say Peter. They didn't say Matthew. They said, let's put Judas in charge because he is the guy. Look at what it says in John 13, verse 29. This is when he goes off to betray Jesus. They still are thinking good thoughts about him. It says this, since Judas had charge of the money, Some thought Jesus was telling him to to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. So even when he's doing something wrong, they think, oh, he's just probably giving to the poor. He's probably, you know, doing good things. He's doing good things. See, sin starts with a small misdeed. If you're taking notes, that's my first point, is that sin always starts with a small misdeed. It's just one look at porn. It's just one time that we're going to lie. It's just one time that we're going to have lunch with him or her. And and besides, it's a business thing. You know, it's nothing nothing to worry about. It's just a work thing. Or it's just one time that we're going to skim off the top and keep for ourselves. Just one time. One time that we're going to do exactly what mom and dad told us not to do. I don't even want to count the one times that I did that. You know, there'd be a lot of one times. It's just the one time that we're going to stay out past curfew. It's just the one time we're going to cheat on our taxes. Next year will be different. I don't know if I cheat on my taxes. Dave does my taxes. I hope I don't cheat on my taxes. Dave, where are you at? I don't think I don't see him. He's, he's not in here, so how am I going to know? How am I going to know? It's just one small misdeed that grows into something bigger. Second point is I think that sin always grows in the presence of envy. 
In the presence of envy or, or jealousy, it, it always grows. And what I mean by that is, is that when we get that attitude, which I think always happens to us when we're, when we're living in, in sin, is we start to say things like, I want what they have. I, I, why can't I have what they have? They go on the nice vacations. They have the, the car that doesn't break down every week. You know, they, they've got a nice car. Why can't I have that? What did they do that was so special that got them those things? Why can't I have that stuff? And kind of as an aside, if that's where you're at ever in your heart, I promise you it doesn't lead anywhere good. It's never a great place to be when all you ever do is think about why can't I have what they have? Why can't I have that? Because if there is any sin in your life in that moment, it's definitely going to grow as you sit there and be envious of other people. I think we see this happening in the life of Judas, uh, specifically in the moment when he's hanging out with Martha and Mary and Lazarus. You may, you may know this story. It's documented for us in John 12. And he's hanging out with it's all the other disciples and Jesus is there and, and Judas. And, and something happens that is unthinkable. Completely unthinkable. Um, Mary takes a bottle of perfume that was worth a year's wages and dumps it on the feet of Jesus. This is the, the greatest offering ever given in Scripture. There is no tithe, no offering, no, no gift ever given that would be as valuable as that. Can you imagine someone who worked at like McDonald's for minimum wage and taking all of the money that they made for a year and then just giving it away? That's, that's what she's doing. She gives everything that she has in that moment away. And this is Judas's response. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Isn't that crazy? I mean, this is the guy that we thought we trusted, that we thought was a good guy. And now, because of a small misdeed, because of envy, he's freaking out on Mary about this perfume. And, and, and what I think is, is true is that life is always unfair to those deeply rooted in sin. You ever been around anybody who loves to just say that all the time? Like, just life is it's so unfair. It's usually people who complain about that that, uh, that are just, they're just rooted in sin. I mean, the rest of us, we just, we just know life is unfair, right? I mean, we're like, we don't wake up tomorrow and be like, wow, I cannot believe life isn't fair. No, we know. We are aware. But when you get deeply rooted in sin, all of a sudden, you just, you just get hung up on it. You get hung up on it. You're, you're overwhelmed with frustration and, 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 and just, oh, why is life so unfair? Our kids say that. I'm sure if you have kids, you've heard a thousand times. It's not fair. Dad, that's not fair. Mom, that's not fair. We, we've developed a response to this in our house. And, and I don't know, we probably don't use it as much as we should, but we say this a lot, that fairness ended in the Garden of Eden. And it's actually, we've said it enough that Lila will tell me that. Like, I've said, that's not fair. And she's like, you know, Dad, that fairness ended in the garden. Get out of here. You know, it's, it's like, but that's true. Whether you realize that or not, that's true. Like, the last time life was fair for anyone 
was before Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. After that, everything is just unfair. Nothing in this life is fair. It's not fair that Jesus went to the cross for our sins. It's not fair that there are moms and dads who would be amazing moms and dads, but they can't have children. And the people that can are terrible moms and dads sometimes. I'm not saying that all of you who have kids are terrible. Don't. <laughs> I didn't. That's not what I meant to say. Kind of came out that way though. But, but I, I think that's true. I mean, sometimes this just life is so unfair. And when we are overwhelmed with sin, we shout so loud about that because everything seems unfair. And that's what Judas is doing. Immediately following this particular encounter with the perfume, we see documented in Mark, Mark 14. It says, then, verse 10, it says, then, immediately following then, Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. See, sin over time makes us numb. Sin over time makes us numb. If we allow it, if we, if we let it in. I mean, this is where Judas is at. He is completely desensitized. He has lost his moral compass. He has no true north anymore. Everything, it's like if you've seen Pirates of the Caribbean and Jack Sparrow and his compass, it just always spins. That's where Judas is at. He has no idea where to go because everything that was right and wrong now, he's just numb to it. You ever been there? You ever been in a situation like that? See, I think we, we get there we end up in this place when we make tiny concessions over time. Little tiny concessions to sin over time. We end up in a place where we no longer know what true north is. Paul said it, uh, just a little brief part of the verse in 1 Timothy 4.2. He says, it's like being people whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. Our conscience is completely gone. We become numb to what right and wrong is. Maybe you're there right now. Maybe not in your whole life, but in an area of your life. And if you are there, you've got to deal with it while it's small. Because when it gets big, it's so difficult to deal with. It's so much harder to deal with. Now, here's the thing I don't want us to miss. Because so far this message has been kind of like negative town. You know, we are downtown negative town, you know, and, and but this is the turnaround. La last point. God always gives us an off ramp. He always gives us an off ramp. Always. He always gives us an opportunity to get out of our sin and to walk away from it. We could be so buried in sin that we can't tell what up or down is. And God extends a hand and says, let's get out of here. Let's walk away from that. But here's something that I think is important to know. And I think most of us get this, maybe not all of us, I don't know. God will let us choose that path every time. If we want to choose to keep going down and walking away from him and just keep going down that path, he will let you. He will let you all the way to the end. We see that with Judas, that he gives him that choice. He gives you and I that choice because that's part of how, how we love him and how he loves us is that we get the opportunity to choose him and he allows us to go down that path. 
Another thing that I think he allows us to do, is, it, it, which is common misconception of, of Scripture, is that he will allow you to take on more than you can bear. And I know this from my own experience of God allowing me to take on more than I can bear and way more than I can handle. But he always gives me a way out. There's always an off-ramp. There's an exit. I just got to take it. You ever missed your exit before? It makes my heart go. You know, I start to freak out. Yeah, maybe just me. I don't know. The rest of you are just like really good at GPS systems. You just got it in you. I, I, I lose my mind if I mix, miss my exit. And, but God says, hey, there it is. And then when we miss that one, strangely enough, he gives us another one. And another one. All the way to the end. All the way to the end. He gives us a way out. We see this with Judas. I really think if you come back to the idea that he called him friend. Remember that. He says, hey, do what you have to, friend. That's him extending that hand saying, you know what? You can get out of this. You don't have to do this. It's interesting. They share a meal together even. The Last Supper, they're sharing a meal together. This, this beautiful moment that we, we, re, we do all the time when we, when we do uh, communion. We, we relive that moment as we, as we take, you know, take communion and he has that meal with him. I don't know about you, but I don't usually share a meal with people who are about to betray me. That I know of anyways, you know. And Jesus knew. Yet he still shared a meal with him. And even more significant than that, which we totally miss, is the gesture where he dips the bread for him. That's huge. That was a sign of honor in that culture. And it's all along just him saying, hey, Judas, hey man, you don't have to do this. You can get out of this. You can take the off-ramp. The question that Judas had to ask and that we have to ask is, are we going to take the off-ramp? Or are we just going to drive on by? Figuratively speaking. I want to end with a, a story that I think is probably rather well-known. Maybe you've heard this before. Um, it's an old Inuit uh, parable. And uh, it's, it's a, of a, how they would trap wolves sometimes the the Inuit tribes they would be they lived in a place where wolves could come in and literally just destroy their whole family just I mean they'd be a nuisance to their whole lives and um, they had developed a method for trapping them I guess they are very difficult to trap I don't know this I've never tried to trap a wolf anybody I mean I be new to me Um, but apparently they're very difficult to do and so what they would do is they learned they could take a knife And they would play on the wolf's greatest weakness, his bloodthirsty nature. And they would take that knife and they would dip it in blood and freeze it. And they would repeat this process over and over and over again until it was covered in frozen layers of blood. And this is a little gruesome, I'm sorry. They would bury it in the snow or fix it to a fence post. And the wolves would smell it from miles away and they would come in and they'd begin to lick the knife and they would... uh, just over and over and over again lick the knife and to the point where they didn't realize that their own tongue had been cut. They're so feverish and just so wild for for blood that they don't even realize that now they're actually drinking their own blood. They have no idea. And they do it so much so that they end up dying either right there on the spot because of severe blood loss or because some other wolf from their own pack comes and actually eats them. And a little gruesome, but I share that story to point out this. It was a small thing 
that led to death. Just a little cut at first. Just a tiny bit of blood coming out that brought them to the point that they die. I want to give you two takeaway thoughts for this morning. And the first one is really a question. And it's this. What what small sins are a problem in your life today that are going to be big problems, massive problems tomorrow? What little cut is bleeding? And if you don't take care of it now, tomorrow, or the next day, or down the road, it's going to be so big that you find yourself dead in sin, as James said. When it's full grown, it gives birth to death. Where are we at in this? I think that we got to figure out a way to cut out the small sin first. It's, it's, it's always easier to deal with the small sins. It's not easy, but it's easier to deal with the small things than the big things. And so what, what is it that you need to cut out of your life now because it's small and avoid waiting till later? That's the first kind of takeaway thought. The second is this. Simply being in proximity to Jesus is no guarantee that you are a follower of Jesus. Hear me on this. Just because you come to church does not mean anything. Nothing. Because your grandma went to church, because you had a a moment at camp 25 years ago where you went to the altar. Judas had a front row seat to Jesus and he missed it. He missed it. How? I don't know. But he missed it. And I pray that we don't miss it. Because it's easy. You can miss it literally by 18 inches. You're like, what's that mean? That's the distance from your head to your heart. And you can know in your head a lot of stuff about Jesus. I mean, believe me, I know this all too well. I went to college and I studied the Bible. I know a lot about the Bible. Whoop-de-doo. Who cares if I don't know Jesus in my heart? You can sit in these pews for 40 years. If you don't know him in your heart, you don't know him, friends. You don't know him. I've met some famous people in my life, but I don't know them. I just met them. They don't call me on the phone, say, hey, how you doing, Ian? Long time since I seen you that one time at that concert. You waited in line for three hours to meet me. No, no, no. Do you know Jesus in your heart? Or like like the video, are you just being deceived? Is your brain filling in the blanks and telling you, oh yeah, you know Jesus. You got a great relationship with Jesus, but your sins, they don't matter. That's okay. It's fine. We can just cover those up. We'll just put them behind the door and close the door and no one will know. It's okay. But your life is a mess. This morning, I want to do something really kind of different. I don't think we close this way very often, but I mean, we, we're going to open the altars and pray. We do that. You can pray at your seat, whatever you want to do. Nathan's going to kind of play for just a few minutes and then he'll lead us in a song, but I asked him to kind of just let it linger. And what I want you to do is there are red cards in the pew in front of you. There should be. If there's not, sneak around and grab one from another spot in the pew. And what I challenge you to do this morning is to take your next step with Jesus, whatever that is. Maybe for you it's the very first step and you've, you've never asked Jesus into your heart and maybe you're gonna do that, you can do that this morning. Or maybe for you it's like, I've been here a thousand times, I've made a thousand steps. Let's do a thousand and one. Just one more step. 
And what I want you to do is take that red card and I want you to put your name on it and then say, I am taking a step with Jesus today. That's all I want you to write. And if you want to write more, go ahead. But I'm just asking, right, I am taking, and if it's the first time, say, I am taking my first step with Jesus today. If it's the thousandth, just say, I'm taking a step with Jesus. We don't need to keep records here. You know, we just want to know about the first and that you're taking a step. And I challenge you to do this this morning. We're going to sing and, and all that, but there's a box right here in the back. Somebody asked me this morning, what's the box about? The box is right there on a chair. Just put that card in there before you leave this morning. And again, we're just doing this as a way to say, I'm going to take that next step closer to Jesus. That may mean that you need to come and pray and, and, and confess something or confess something, something at your seat. But my challenge is that you would take a next step with Jesus, whatever that looks like for you, and believe in your heart that he wants a relationship with you. That's our challenge this morning. Let's stand together. If you need to sit to fill out the car, that's fine. You, you can do that. Just stand whenever. Um, We'll, we'll pray together in a moment. What a beautiful way to kind of end that. He is jealous, jealous, jealous for your heart. He wants a relationship with you, even if you've totally messed everything up. Even if like you've made a career out of messing it up. He wants to make, take a mess, take what was dead and bring it back to life. Make it beautiful again in this beautiful exchange. I promise the math does not work out. It does not line up, but he still does it somehow. He, he wants a relationship with you. He loves you, and he wants you to take your next step closer to him. And I pray that if, if you didn't do it in this moment this morning, if you didn't uh, kind of sense that and make that commitment, that later in the week that this will just kind of pop back up in your mind, in your heart, and, 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 you'll, and you'll do that. You'll, you'll just trust him more and and surrender yourself to him a little bit more and take that next step. Let's pray. Jesus, we need you. We are but a mess. God, there are so many things in our lives that are pulling us away from you, that are wanting to drag us off and entice us and drag us away from you. And, and, and so many things that just would leave us for dead if, if we allow it. Help us to have the strength to, to turn away from those temptations, to turn away from those sins, and to take the off-ramp. Take that step close to you, Jesus. You're waiting for us. Your hand is out, extended, and may we find the grace and the, and the ability to, to take your hand, Jesus. As we leave this place, may we just feel your, feel your presence filling our hearts. And may we be overwhelmed by it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you have a great week, church. And then we'll see you back next week for Palm Sunday.